Good afternoon and welcome to Adjusting Your Security Posture to an IOMT World Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Medigate. Just a little housekeeping. My name's Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation in the event. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box and leave the default set to, well, actually, no, just send them in at any time, uh, and we'll take a look at those. Regarding, uh, we're also going to do a poll, which we'll have everyone guess at. should be quite a bit of fun later in the event. Just so uh, you could see how we like to see the screen, uh, click on the top in the center, get it in side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider in the middle to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our panel discussion featuring Shri Bharadwaj, VP of Digital Innovation with Franciscan Health, Anahi Santiago, Chief Information Security Officer with Christiana Care Health System, and Jonathan Langer, co-founder and CEO of Medigate, and then we will take your questions. So let's jump right into the discussion. Shri, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity, Anthony. This is uh, Shri Bharadwaj, Vice President of Digital Innovation. Uh, Franciscan Health Alliance is a, uh, um, a hospital system located in Indiana, Illinois, 14 hospitals with several uh, clinics and in, in specialties and subspecialties across um, across uh, uh, multiple states. Uh, this role is a very interesting role and uh, talks a lot about what we do with uh, you know medical devices. Uh, we are at this point in a, in a tipping spear, several uh, virtual capabilities that we are bringing to bear for our physicians and improving care for patients, uh, such as a Bluetooth uh, stethoscope. Uh, uh, several other uh, devices that uh, we use day-to-day uh, -day for physicians to interact with patients, including virtual care technologies. We'll talk about that as well today. Thank you. Thanks, Sri. Anahi? Hi. Uh, good afternoon, Anahi Santiago. I am the Chief Information Security Officer at Christiana Care, which is the largest health system in the state of Delaware. We also um, serve the uh, three neighboring states, um, and I am very happy to be here and to share. Excellent, thank you. Jonathan. Hello everyone, this is Jonathan Langer. Uh, I am the CEO of a company called Medigate. Uh, we're a healthcare security and clinical asset management company. Uh, so what we do, what we have the opportunity to do is to help HDOs improve their cybersecurity around IoT, medical devices, clinical assets, and so on. And thank you so much for joining today. Excellent. All right. Let's uh, get into the first main question. Anahi, let's start with you. Will digitalization uh, being pushed out to patient, outpatient and telemedicine uh, with it, how will it, uh, securing them be pl play out? Uh, I feel like we just had this conversation offline as we were preparing to get on here. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's it's a challenge, uh, but it's one that we have to accept um, and work with our 
stakeholders, both clinicians and the business, as well as our technology partners, um, in upping the security game. Um, and that, you know, we'll do that through the same way we've done it traditionally through risk assessments, through partnering with, um, with those uh, technology providers, with having conversations around risk management and risk treatment, um, and then um, making sure that through the entire life cycle of the supply chain that we are embedding security processes and controls and then circling back and making sure that um, the, the security that we've all mutually agreed to implement um, is prevalent. Yeah, that's an interesting point is making sure what's been uh, uh, contractually agreed upon actually happens. Is that, is that what you mean? Uh, exactly. What's, and that as the threats, um, as the threat landscape changes, that we're circling back and making sure that we're not now introducing new risks into technology that we've onboarded uh, without taking into account um, new potential risks and threats that might now be you know, inherent in those devices. Interesting. Uh, Jonathan? Yeah, um, I totally agree, of course. And I also think that this is going to be a challenge that I think we're going to see a whole lot more of uh, as adoption becomes uh, much more prevalent as we've been seeing in COVID. I also think that this uh, digitalization trend will be pushed also outside of the acute hospitals uh, to the outpatient facilities uh, and so on. So we're going to see it kind of across the board. Um, to me, the way I see it, I think that the first challenge uh, is going to be to keep a record or an inventory of all these devices. A basically visibility across all the network because you're going to have a lot of them and they're going to be on mobile devices and it's going to be uh, all over the place. Uh, and I think just getting a handle of the of that inventory of these sensitive devices uh, probably probably going to be a, a good starting point. Well, that's a whole topic right there, right, Jonathan? Getting the getting the inventory. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, I think it's going to be quite a challenge, and there are lots of ways to to go about this. I'm sure that the other participants uh, could weigh in, uh, but it's a it's a it's a crucial starting point because otherwise uh, you won't know exactly what to secure and kind of where to start. So definitely would highlight that point. Yeah, we'll touch on that. Sri. So from from where we are today, um, we we don't think of IoT devices as uh, uh, anything different. We, we consider them to be part of the framework of how we operate, right? So uh, we, we have a home health situation where we have several patients with these devices that we have sent to their homes. And so we have a tracking mechanism to pull that information back from them. Uh, we have several devices across the system that allows, uh, you know, us to take uh, temperature and as, as, as our patients and guests come into the hospital. So we have those devices as, uh, because they are all connected to the network, um, they are considered to be, um, you know, IOMT devices. Uh, we also have devices that are infrared cameras, <clears throat> both uh, single use as well as uh, crowd uh, thermal scanning uh, capabilities across our health systems too. So our, um, goal and our entire process around this has kind of increased due to this process, due to due to COVID, and uh, it's it's changing the way you know. Even though we are all 
you know, working remotely, whatever it is, um, our, our processes have become more and more uh, structured around risk and how we manage the risk and uh, identifying where these devices are uh, is the first part to getting there. Yeah, so that's again touching on the idea of inventory, a sound mm -hmm. inventory, right, Sri? That's that's yep. a starting point. That's a starting point. Yep. It's difficult, though, correct? It's probably one of the most difficult things to do uh, in a situation where uh, you know people bring in and take out devices a lot. Um, we we not even have to worry. Forget about the devices that we've deployed in the network, right? There's so much other devices coming into the network, uh, uh, getting attached to our network as well. So we are extremely careful about how we put in these net networks, uh, put these devices into the network, and also make sure that you know it is safe uh, for these devices to be on the network. I uh, give you a classic example. Um, in my previous role. With the University of California, uh, Irvine, uh, we, there was a mandate uh, uh, with one of the, uh, I don't want to mention names, but uh, there was a mandate for us to look at uh, all mobile devices coming from one specific entity in China. And uh, we, were, we were asked to identify those devices and make sure that those devices are, uh, are we, we haven't bought any of those devices, number one, and number two, identify which patients have connected uh, to our network using those devices. Um, that that was an exercise in itself, right? Trying to identify these. Luckily, we had the tools, technologies to actually do that. Uh, but it was it was an exercise uh, across the University of California system to actually do that kind of work because that is that becomes you know there was some issues of national safety, security, etc., uh, which we don't typically talk in IOMT kind of situations. But that's a use case that uh, definitely uh, we are very familiar with. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. It sounds like something that it, it, people need to be in a position to be able to accomplish. So, for example, down the road, you have to be able to handle that type of request if it yep. comes up. Yep. All right. CMS so we'll is getting closer to doing the remote patient monitoring, and they're going to be starting to ask for this information. Right, right. Very good. All right. Uh, next question, uh, Sri. Let's stick with you. Given the constraints of current budgets, with coronavirus shutting down elective procedures, we all know about that. How will hospitals balance cost savings with the costs of securing their IOMT? So, you know, you've got a decrease in overall revenues at the hospital. We assume that that's at some point that's going to hit the IT budget in some way. Uh, but yet you might have an increase in cost for security because you're extending the enterprise. So is that so? Is that what you're facing in terms of the revenue you, you, revenue you have to get the work done? And if, if so, how do you accomplish it? No doubt. It's definitely hitting IT from a budget perspective. Um, we, we have taken several measures to shore up our security capabilities. Uh, even though we know that that is going to be budget constraint. Uh, in other words, um, we we do not have the manpower anymore uh, to do this work. It all has to be in some way, shape, or form automated. Uh, so running reports, tracking devices through IPs, uh, making sure that the vulnerable devices have been passed appropriately within the timeframes uh, so that we can mitigate any risk. Uh, these are some of the ch challenges that we face and have been facing for the past few months. 
Uh, our goal has been to take a very enterprise risk-based approach uh, to this effort. Um, the enterprise risk is, is uh, heightened and increased, no doubt, uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, um, we are, uh, we've shored up our, our capabilities as well uh, to bring to bear what we think uh, makes sense from an enterprise risk perspective. So we, uh, we, we initially started with uh, identifying risks that we will have to mitigate, uh, take it to our uh, security privacy executive committee, and help them understand where we come from, including the devices coming from medical uh, uh, medical areas that we have a lot of our people taking in our devices as well. And uh, we've been able to help them understand and uh, that way, at least we have a path going forward. And I hear- uh, Well, I'll get on my soapbox for a second. Um, organizations really need to stop thinking about security as an additional cost and instead really consider security as part of the cost of doing business. And as we're thinking about making decisions on how to use technology to deliver healthcare, we need to always consider the risks of um, missing something in, in, in the way of security. And so as as we're building our processes to really think through how to build budgets and how to um, do cost containment um, and, and promote healthcare delivery, we really have to embed the security costs up front um, as far to the left as possible so that they're now considered an afterthought. And, and I think part of the challenge has always been that if, if you think about um, the cost of security, the further that you move it to the right, the costlier it is. If you're bolting on cybersecurity after the fact, it's gonna be a lot more expensive than if you're actually thinking about it from the very beginning. Um, and when it comes to uh, today's budgets, right? I think everybody can agree that we've all had to tighten the purse strings um, because we, we've had to um, you know, reduce the amount of services that um, have been delivered for the past three to four months. They're now just slowly building them back in and trying to recover. Um, we've all had to think through how to adjust our budget. And, but that doesn't mean completely cutting out security. It means figuring out how to be more efficient about doing it. Um, and, and as I shared, you know, when we're looking at onboarding these technologies, we think about the risks. Um, and we do that at the very beginning so that we can talk through how we're going to embed security. And to Shree's point, I think automation is really important um, for our organization, we've already made a lot of investments that have afforded us the ability to be a bit more agile on the security end because we don't have to invest so much after the fact. I think it's going to be particularly challenging for some of the um, smaller organizations that are probably um, affected more from a cost perspective and have not made those investments. Um, and so hopefully through these kinds of discussions, um, those smaller organizations can learn about some of the things that our larger organizations have already implemented and maybe take some things away that can help them to implement controls and processes um, that perhaps aren't as um, dependent on security technology to be able to offset some of the costs of having to implement security technologies um, right now when budgets are so tight. 
Very good. All right, Jonathan, let's start with you. Are you seeing more collaboration between ITIS and clinical engineering? So what are you seeing among your customers? Uh, no doubt uh, we're seeing a whole lot more collaboration between uh, these organizations. I'm not sure it's at the point uh, across the board where we would want it to be uh, as an industry, but I think today uh, there is a realization that in order to have an end-to-end -end security program, that addresses uh, all clinical assets, including medical devices, you really need to have closer collaboration between these organizations. And I think that there are some really, I guess, day-to-day -day or simple examples that, that I can give. I'll, I'll give one. Um, let's say that information security identifies a, a new vulnerability that affects a, an old operating system a, that, a, that is used on a medical device. Now, in order for, for them to do the patching, more often than not, they will have to reach out to the biomed department, prioritize that so that they can go ahead and get the, reach out to the manufacturer, get a new patch if, one, if there is an available patch, um, and go ahead and, and take that device offline and install the patch. And that requires a good process, a good coordination between, uh, between the, the various organizations. And it's kind of a day-to-day -day thing. Uh, and to me, the key component of getting that, uh, of making that available is having really good communication, a good line of communication between the, the, the different organizations, and then implementing processes and technology uh, to implement those processes or to automate those processes once that line of communication is set. Uh, but that's what I'm seeing. And I do think that there's improvement in acknowledgement around that point, at least where I'm seeing the industry from. Are we thinking of IT and IS as separately? Because in a lot of organizations, the CISO reports to the CIO, so then they're kind of combined. So how do you think of it, or how do you see it mostly? So obviously intertwined uh, for sure, but I'll give you an example of something that's more on the IT side. Sometimes, let's say I was giving the example of a patch. Let's say a patch is not available, and we need to go ahead and mitigate that risk through... A, some sort of segmentation or some sort of policy on the network that uh, minimizes the exposure or the attack vector to that specific uh, asset. So you're going to need the IT folks to, to make some changes on the fabric itself, on the network, and you're going to get some network engineers or uh, you may have uh, some changes to the network that you'll have to involve the IT or the IT security team. Uh, so I think overall you're going to need these three entities while they're intertwined there are, I guess, uh, nuances uh, that, that you would have to uh, get people from the various organizations on board. Anahi, what are your thoughts there? How are you, your organization, how is it set up in terms of those three entities? Um, and have we moved forward in terms of collaboration? Has it gotten better? Is there still room for it to improve? So um, in our organization, information security does tree up to the CIO, um, mm -hmm. but we also have a um, we also have a security team member that lives pretty much within the clinical engineering space, and that individual really serves to bridge the gap between the two departments to ensure that. Um, there, there's really good collaboration, that there are boots on the ground from a security perspective embedded in the clinical and medical device space, um, and also to ensure that there, there really is a very strong um, 
tie between IT that runs all the infrastructure, that um, runs all the apps, clinical engineering that now is not only hardware, but you've got medical devices that are applications, um, you know, or applications that are medical devices, and then information security. I think one one element that is missing from you know from from this slide is is procurement um, and supply chain because they're also really embedded in that in that overall life cycle of how devices get onboarded, the contracting, how they're managed, um, the preventative maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in an organization there there is a lot of collaboration. I mean. Um, we keep going back to asset management, which is so important. I think on a weekly basis, I reach out to our clinical engineering folks and our team member that lives within that space. And I ask, hey, here's a new alert. Do we have these devices? Are we affected? Are we vulnerable? And it's great to be able to get feedback within minutes sometimes, um, whether we are or we are not. I don't think we would have that kind of cadence if we hadn't worked really hard to build these relationships um, and to form, you know, real clear lines of communication. Another example that I, I give is every day at 10 a.m., we have a, um, a cybersecurity huddle um, that includes some members of the team that are um, responsible for incident response and vulnerability management. Um, and clinical engineering, the, the team member that lives within clinical engineering is part of those cyber huddles to make sure that we're talking about the threat landscape, current and existing vulnerabilities, and are all sort of moving in concert and supporting each other um, throughout the whole life cycle of security. Very good, Sri. So in our world, I think clinical uh, engineering is not part of our IS program the IT and IS all work in the CIO's office. Um, however, having said that, uh, we are very closely tied with clinical engineering. It is very interesting uh, how, how the, the level of closeness that we are is, is like, you know, if, if, if and when they want to buy any device, they'll come to us. And if and when uh, we are looking at any device, we go to them. So that's how close we are. I'll give you an example here. Uh, when we are looking at thermal cameras um, for us to deploy across our uh, network of hospitals, uh, we had uh, we had looked at several of these devices, and then we we pinged uh, clinical engineering, and uh, they said they will take over the effort and help through the process, and actually work very closely to do risk assessments, identifying if the vendor is a true vendor, like what um, Anai was talking about, you know, a few minutes ago about you know, all these vendors are new, they're trying to get into the marketplace, it's, it's highly risky because they mm. may, not, may or may not have all of the HIPAA, you know, um, uh, even understand what HIPAA means, right? Because they just are looking at selling thermal cameras. Uh, but they have data that could be uh, compromised and we have to provide that information back to the patient because now you're dealing with the patient direct, directly. They know you are scanning that information. So what Street. we did, we, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. So, no, I was going to say, have you, have you ever been, Ananahi, uh, you can probably answer this, have you ever been in a position where you're actually educating uh, a vendor uh, and saying, oh, you know, yeah. you wind up sort of tutoring them and saying, hey, you got something cool, but I can't work with you unless, here's what you need to do now, go see if you can do this and then come back and check with me. Oh, I do that every day, man. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's because, so, so here it is, right? I'm in the innovation world on one side 
and I'm also on the security world and the other. On the innovation world, anything goes, right? Who the heck's worried about security, right? As long as I innovate and as long as I'm able to get better patient outcomes, that's what I'm aiming for. I mean, security, yeah, we'll deal with it when we need to deal with it, right? So we, we, every day when I have a conversation when I go, the first question is, have you looked at HIPAA? Have you looked at PHI? Where are you storing the data? You got it. Oh, it's, it's everything is secure. Okay. What do you mean by everything is secure? <laughs> it's, it's all in AWS. I'm like, okay, so have you got anything signed with Amazon? Well, we signed their standard click through. I'm like, okay, that's not helping me. So it's, it's educating the vendor is one thing, but sometimes they open their eyes and go, oh, we got to do all this work in order to work with the health system. Yeah. So it's a very different conversation when it go to that kind of a model. So innovation is great, but innovation without security is going nowhere in no health system. Anahi? Oh, every day, every day. And, and I actually, I think I spent every day last week lamenting the fact that I've now become as a, a, a CISO advisor for all these medical device companies um, <laughs> at no cost. Yeah, um, and, and it's interesting because it's almost become part of the risk management conversation that we have with the business in terms of those medical device vendors that are really open to dialogue and to the education and to learning and those that push back or have some level of arrogance. Um, and, 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 you know, if the two are the same in terms of the investments that they've made in security, but one is much more apt to enter in, into negotiations and add language to the contract that binds them to perhaps getting a SOC 2 type 2 report or uh, doing vulnerability scans or implementing a software development lifecycle program or one was it. Um, we're much more willing to go with those vendors that are willing to work with us and to learn that those that think that they already know it all um, and that don't agree that um, they need to have their own SOC 2 type 2 report as opposed to just delivering the Amazon Web Services one or the Google one. Um, and so I think um, I've gotten to a point where I feel like we're helping the industry if we actually do invest some time in educating these vendors because they're going to be better for the next person. And in fact, we, we actually benefited from, from some of this where I engaged in discussions with a vendor last week that was that's really immature, but very, very open to, um, to education. And we had done the risk assessment about a month back. And when we had a conversation yesterday, they said to us, oh, yes, this large insurance company really, really pushed us hard. And we've done all this stuff in the span of a month. So what you thought were some gaps are no longer gaps. And I thought, wow, OK. Mm. So, um, so this insurance company pushed them. And by the time it got to us, they're a little bit more mature. They still need to work. But if I push another vendor, then that'll be better for the next healthcare system that needs to engage. So I think um, this model could actually work to help improve the overall landscape. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? So I think that in healthcare, um, still as, as the startup representative here in the, in the forum, uh, I think that, that in, in healthcare, and we learned this ourselves very early on, in order to do a business with healthcare organizations, we have to be very, very sensitive uh, around, around the data 
and the importance of this to the business. And it's just something that you have to acknowledge early on. And whether it's a, a, the ISO a, a certifications or SOC 2 or a, a annual pen testing and all sorts of requirements that are, that are needed, there's no, there's no point in fighting this because it is important. It's important to, uh, to Anna's point, it's important to the business, it's important to the industry, um, and it's important for HIPAA regulation, uh, and it's just an investment, I see it, uh, in the, the company itself uh, to do this and to do it early and to do it well and to do it on an ongoing basis and not just a one-off, but to actually respect uh, the process around this. Um, and, and that's what we've done, and, and I think uh, almost all companies that are educated early on acknowledge this and do indeed uh, act this way moving forward. Excellent. Okay, next question, Anahi, let's start with you. What about governance? Are you seeing a change in governance models, for example, security and clinical engineering rolling up to the CIO? You know what, I, I haven't seen that a lot. I, I mean, there are some organizations where clinical engineering does roll up to the CIO, but I don't think it's necessary. I think if you have a, you know, your governance model for security should encompass um, all areas of the organization, not just clinical engineering or IT. And the way that we've set up uh, our governance and the way that I set up the governance um, at my former organization is uh, to have a steering committee that's inclusive of all the key areas within the organization. So nursing, physicians, um, research, privacy, compliance, legal, external affairs, um, you know, academic affairs. I'm missing a few. Um, uh, and where that steering committee is the one where decisions are made and policies are developed. And they're also chartered then to be the champions to communicate the importance of cybersecurity to stakeholders across the organization. And clinical engineering should definitely be part of that governance um, so that decisions aren't made in silos about security and overall, you know, controls. And so if you've got a governance model that works well, um, naturally clinical engineering and other areas of the organization that, that employ IoT devices um, will be included in those decision makings because we, we've talked a lot about medical devices here, but um, you know the the thing that controls the doors or the IP cameras or the um, computer that controls the heating and air conditioning in the organization those are all IoT devices that aren't managed by clinical engineering but um, are managed by somebody, uh, whether it be IT or facilities management. Sri, I'm guessing if you looked at an org chart or um, a governance sort of chart for an organization and you looked at how things were situated in terms of the CISO, you could probably guess what model would be successful and which one was going to fail. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, no doubt about it all. And the way I'm looking at it is, is that um, if you if you look at a a typical health system today, right? Uh, most of them have their CISOs reporting to the CIO. Some of them even have the reporting to the CTO. Uh, some of them to the compliance officer that is outside of 
IT in a way, and uh, some of them to the board, right? Depending on the level of the position as well. The the biggest challenge I see in in in, in this model, in any organization structure model, is when the CISO report to the CTO, because in some respects he is limited by how much um, how much the uh, CISO has the wherewithal to do because the CTO in some way, shape or form directs the CISO to say, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and that's all I can spend the money on. So don't come and tell me it's not secure, just make it so, right? So that is a challenge that we have um, going forward. The CISO reporting to the CIO, you have mostly the CISO working on the technology oriented projects and efforts, nothing, not much beyond that. The ideal position would be the CISO reporting to the board or a, a, a CEO or somebody else at the highest realm, uh, which will help the CISO be objective enough that he or she can find challenges, not just with uh, the technology aspects of it, but with facilities, with operations, with compliance, uh, with clinical engineering, with respect to where they report into. I think that is the best model that we can aim for. Uh, the goal is to make sure that we've got that objectivity uh, that is provided to the CISO, and he can he cannot be reprimanded in a way for pointing out that there is a security issue or risk in any of those functions. I think that is the way I would look at a governance model, and uh, the clinical engineering. Uh, and uh, and security both reporting to the CIO. Uh, it's not a you know it's not a common model. Uh, it's getting there, uh, but uh, as more and more IoT devices are being put in the marketplace and also in hospitals, it's getting there. But definitely uh, the broader governance model um, that we have put in place is around using a committee. Uh, compliance, Risk, Information, Security, and Privacy Committee, uh, Security, Province, Executive Committee, and a compliance committee across the entire system that we have the CISO reporting to, uh, not quote-unquote reporting to from an organizational perspective, but reporting to from an activity perspective, function, feature, functionality perspective, that he has the right to go and present in front of that group or committee about risks that he sees across the system that then they can provide an opinion and provide some guidance around how we you know, mitigate the risk, remediate the risk, eliminate the risk, and so on. Jonathan, what do you think is the optimal model? Um, and again, I, I, I think of a CISO looking at a, an organization they're thinking of going to, looking at the governance model, how every department reports up, where they're situated, and saying possibly, I can't be successful in this model because a lot of stuff is going to get done without my involvement or approval, and therefore I'm going to have to catch it after the fact, which you know, he said is much more expensive. It creates a lot of risk. So I'm guessing you could look at it on paper and say this isn't going to work. So I think that, or, or you know what, based on my observations on HDOs that we're working with or talking to, lots of different models and the Sri and Anai mentioned, mentioned some of them. Um, I, I think that every organization has a different heritage, different culture. So there is no one specific uh, governance model that I, I could necessarily recommend. What I do like and what I've seen that it, it is 
been immensely successful, and I think that the other speakers uh, mentioned this as well, is that when you have a committee set up where there are open lines of communication and the different and the various uh, uh, business organizations talk about security uh, before they make decisions uh, and, and, and talk about the plan moving forward, that's an essential. The problem starts, and maybe this is why uh, there's been some movement from uh, Biomed to, to roll up to, to the CIO, where organizations such as Biomed had made decisions without consulting security, and then security becomes much, much more expensive and much, much more uh, complex, because now you already have, I don't know, a thousand devices that nobody really tracked and are connected to the network and pose risk. So regardless of the governance model, as long as there's a committee with open lines of communication to discuss this ahead of time, I think that's great. And it's, and it's a cultural thing more than a governance thing, I think. It starts with good culture, good organizational Excellent. culture. Very good. Thank you. All right, Jonathan, I want to stick with you on this next one. How can hospitals address risk mitigation through other measures such as zero trust, network-centric policy enforcement, et cetera? Uh, so I think that the, the reality is, as, as we all know, that uh, various uh, assets in an HDO pose, uh, pose risk uh, to the network and uh, risk to uh, patient safety and patient privacy. Uh, the truth is, is that remediation of vulnerabilities 100% while it's it's a good thing to strive towards that, it's not practical it, just because the the pace in which uh, technology changes and new vulnerabilities are discovered, unfortunately, versus the pace in which the medical device manufacturers or the IoT manufacturers or networking manufacturers are able to remediate, it just can't, it, it's not as fast as, as you would want it to be. And that's the reality. Um, so to me, the, the best security uh, strategy would be a combination of remediation, you know, remediate, uh, patching, uh, but at the same time also mitigating risk uh, through uh, various uh, network restrictions and policy enforcement. It's always going to be combined in some shape or form until ultimately there's a patch out there. Um, and I think that the challenge of getting that segmentation in place uh, using all the incumbent uh, security products that most organizations already have, like the common firewall, network access control, uh, endpoint security, and so on. The challenge is about defining a strategy around that, a zero trust uh, strategy, uh, and automating policies that will actually make this something uh, that is uh, attainable. I think it's, it's, um, it, it is a challenge, in terms of getting there, uh, because doing this without some sort of automation is going to be, I, I'm not sure it's entirely sustainable given the workload, uh, but I think that a lot of organizations are now looking at that in terms of an objective, and I, I do think that it can be a very effective measure moving forward. It's a process, it's not a flip of a switch, of course. Uh, it, can be, it can take a year or two, uh, at least, in a very solid process, and cross-organizational buy-in as going back to our previous conversation about culture, uh, but I do think it's attainable, uh, and and I think that technologies today uh, can can make this happen. Very good, Anahi. 
Uh, I mean, I, I think Jonathan covered a lot of it succinctly. I mean, it really, the, the, there is the ability to mitigate risk through compensating controls, whether it's network access control, whether it's identity and access management. I mean, we talk about zero trust, but even that, that word um, includes many different layers of controls. You've got device control, you've got access management, you've got identity and access management, you've got application control. So, um, just looking at the different layers and the capabilities of, of the security stack can often um, lower the, the risks and, and help to manage the risks that are inherent in medical devices. And, you know, I've talked about contractual controls, but those two are important in terms of making sure that uh, you, you don't allow outdated operating systems to run on those devices, that there are some patch management parameters that you've mutually agreed to with your technology vendors so that they're not holding you hostage for a year with unpatched systems. So it's it's really about people, process, and technology. Sri? From, from my perspective, I think uh, risk mitigation comes with first with risk identification. Um, Identifying the risk is probably, you know, knowing what you're managing allows you to manage things better. Um, zero trust network centric policy enforcement, et cetera, are, are what you would, you would term as things that you can do once you realize that, oh my God, we have a problem, right? So um, what, uh, what we are, what we do as a, as a way is to first uh, kind of understand um, how risky is it, right? I mean, how many times has it has it happened, or how many times could it happen? Uh, what what is the what is the risk uh, profile of that specific device or process? Uh, once we've identified that, then we we have the appropriate measures, right? I mean, everything cannot be protected through a a patch. Uh, everything cannot be protected through uh, some sort of a report running on and telling me every day something is going on in this system, right? Because then. I'll be uh, uh, kind of a, a slave to that process, right? So what we do, what we look at is a comprehensive set of measures that we put in place, depending on uh, the risk profile of that specific uh, device or process, uh, that will help us manage and mitigate that risk appropriately. All right, very good. We're going to do our audience poll, and I'm going to put that out there and. Uh... We can have our panelists can vote as well. All health systems should be working towards a zero trust framework. So uh, we know what that is. We know it's uh, very comprehensive and it takes a long time and it's a lot of work. Um, so that's a question. Is that should that is that an appropriate goal for all health systems to be working towards that, or is it not appropriate for everyone? Uh, and in which case you can go ahead and disagree. So we will take a look at those results and have our panelists guess at them in a moment. Um, right now I wanna to jump to our Ask a Co-Panelists and I wanna give Jonathan a question to ask one or both of our co-panelists a question. Jonathan, what do you got? Uh, so maybe a question for both the panelists, uh, I'll be brief. Uh, given the, the COVID situation and the changes to your respective uh, healthcare systems, uh, have your priorities changed uh, in terms of security, uh, digital innovation, um, and if so, uh, how? And I don't mean just uh, 
in the first couple, three months about the remote work. More strategically speaking, have there any been changes? Curious to hear. Sri, let's go with you first. Uh, definitely has changed uh, the way we look at security going forward. Um, and the reason why I say that is because um, we've gone more virtual from a physician patient engagement, from a nursing engagement uh, across the board. Uh, that has caused uh, us to take a look at uh, how we are interacting, engaging with patients, uh, what we are doing from that perspective. And then, you know, I'll give you a classic example, use of my chart, right? Um, you know, self sign up for my chart. How is that important? Well, uh, that's the only way we are allowing patients to get access to some of our physicians uh, in a very virtual manner without coming into the clinic or anything else, right? That's a simple thing. But it means that we have the right controls in place from a security perspective to vet, validate the patient, make sure the patient is getting the appropriate care, attention, we can to, to log in and authentication and access and data that's fed into that mobile device. That is go That has changed the way we look at things going forward. Not that we did not have that before, but it's accelerated our approach to making sure even though we are expanding our abilities, we are securing uh, that process while the expansion happens. Uh, same thing with virtual uh, visits, which we do today. Uh, same thing with medical devices that we do today. Uh, we, are, we are buying a ton of medical devices uh, to do remote patient monitoring. That, that also is something that we'll put into the same security par uh, paradigm. So that's how it's changing. Uh, Nahi? Uh, yeah, yes, they have changed um, somewhat. I mean, the priorities um, in terms of our roadmap and how we engage with our business and our clinical stakeholders hasn't changed. Um, but what has changed is the conversation around the fact that not only do we have to account for the security of our environment or the cloud, um, but we now have to account for what I've been talking about probably for about two years, which is patients' homes. And the fact that we're now taking these devices and we're sending them home to the patients. And we're perhaps asking the patients to install an app on their phones. Um, and we can guarantee that the, post the security posture of a patient's home and of their devices are not aligned with how we employ security in the organization. And so we really need to start to think about how we extend our security controls and our security environment um, to that patient's home, because we certainly don't want to just give them a device that might put their health at risk or, or actually their, 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 their data at risk um, without regard. So I, I knew this was coming. I knew these conversations and that the roles of, of CISOs was going to change um, again, from securing the data center to the cloud to now patients' home, but it's here, and now we're hacked. So, so the, the conversations have changed, and the dialogue has changed in in, in that effect. All right, we're gonna have, we're gonna guess at our poll results, and then we're gonna we're gonna share them. So, um, Jonathan, I want to start with you. What percentage do you think agree with the idea that all health systems should be working toward a zero trust framework? I am putting my money on 80%. 80%. All right. Anahi. I was going to go 65. 65%. Sounds confident there. Sri? 70. 
Seventy percent. Well, it's a goal, right? Think about it. Wow. All right, this is a really close one, but if my math is correct, the winner is Anahi. The answer is sixty-seven <laughs> percent. Oh, geez. and uh, so yes, very, very close. Uh, Jonathan, not even close, buddy. I'm sorry. You don't get a prize oh today. Oh, my God. Bronze. I have one audience question I want to get to quickly before we wrap. Um, and here it is. Uh, this is uh, very good in concept. Uh, I assume we're talking about zero trust, but difficult to do for smaller players. How can smaller health systems pivot to this framework with the funding available? Jonathan, any advice there? I think it's about taking it bits and pieces. Uh, and he said this uh, previously, it's a broad concept and very comprehensive. But if you break it down uh, to, to small parts, I think that also uh, smaller organizations with lower budgets can make a movement towards the comprehensive zero trust, starting with your perimeter firewall, starting with some basic rules, not getting as granular as you would want, but taking a first step you can do this in relatively low cost the way that I see it. Not zero cost, but lower cost. Anahi, quickly, any thoughts? Uh, yes, I, I think um, a, I think it's important that organizations, before you go and jump to the buzzword, that you're doing the basic security hygiene things first, like patch management and vulnerability management. And then you decompose your trust and you pick one thing as opposed to trying to do everything, whether it's identity and access management or device management, just pick one thing and do that well. Sri, quickly give you the last word. From my perspective, I think uh, overall, uh, the pandemic is going to give us a different view. Um, we have to continuously push the security irrespective of having people like we talked about, the water cooler conversations are no longer available for us, but the water coolers are your Zoom and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. WebEx and those kinds of meetings. And have those, continue to have those water cooler discussions, have, continue to have the security agenda, make it part of the fabric, and uh, develop a more structured approach to risk management. Excellent. All right. That's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our panel, Sri Bharadwaj, Anahi Santiago, and Jonathan Langer. I want to thank Medigate for sponsoring and making this important conversation possible. And I want to thank you, our attendees, for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.